However, it's very clear to me that if you show up and put one tiny baby foot step in front of the other, you're creating forward motion. And my professional life is sort of a reflection of that. Welcome back to another episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood. When you hear my next guest's last name, you most likely think of her larger-than-life big brother, David Lee Roth, you know, lead singer of Van Halen. But how many of you knew that musical prowess ran in the family? Driven to her love of music and turning that love of music into a gift that mothers and babies could enjoy together, she conceived an album series called Rockabye Baby. Each album is a compilation of iconic greatest hits turned into instrumental lullabies. Acts like Metallica, Lady Gaga, Fleetwood Mac, Madonna, No Doubt, Snoop Dogg, and of course, Van Halen have never sounded so sweet. With over 100 albums released and billions of streams under her belt, she's proven to be an exceptional entrepreneur, record label executive, and creative director. Please welcome the ballerina turned nutritionist turned television producer, turned record label executive, with an activist heart and the best baby shower gifts on the planet, welcome Lisa Roth. Wow, that is the best intro I have ever in my entire long life gotten. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. (laughs) First, we're going to do the shakedown, which is a list of questions that we ask all of our special guests. So I'm going to ask, are you ready to shake it down? Absolutely. Okay, here's the first big question. Who was your first concert? So easy. Sly and the Family Stone at the Hollywood Bowl in the early 70s. I was 15 years old. I remember wearing a chambray denim shirt and matching pants with a red bandana around my neck and red shoes and big blue aviator glasses. I was beside myself. They were over an hour late, which was perfection. And I will never forget it. (laughs) Okay, now, how do you top that? Like, what do you follow that up with? Earth, wind, and fire. (laughs) And she remembers. Bam, I love it. (laughs) Um, So, of course, I'm going to follow that up with what was the first album you bought with your own money? Also, very easy memory. I saved my 25-cent weekly allowance for months. And when I knew I had enough, I went to Canterbury Records in Pasadena, California, and bought Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. And we're going to come back to Marvin Gaye here after we get through with the shakedown. Well, of course, now we talked about, you know, the past. Which artist or band is in heavy rotation on your playlist right now? The answer to that is probably more of a genre than an artist. Although right before starting this interview, I listened to Blaze Foley sing the beautiful song he wrote called If I Could Only Fly, which was re-recorded by many artists, including Merle Haggard. And I listened to it because it calms me. It's just stunningly beautiful. But on my any playlist is always good old 1960s, 70s R&B soul music, the best music ever written 
anywhere, anytime. Okay, so I grew up in the Detroit area, so I'm not going to argue with you on that. Motown all the way. <laughs> the best. <laughs> Which woman has had the most influence on your career? Yeah, again, it was probably more circumstances that had an influence on my careers. But if I have to pick a woman, it would be my grandmother, my father's mother, who was an immigrant. She came through Ellis Island in the early 1900s. She had a high school education, lived in a steel mill town in Indiana, and had a real mind for science and a real desire to know what she was putting in her body. And was very interested in nutrition, food in general, ingredients. And she started writing letters to food companies decades ago, 60 years, 70 years ago, questioning things like, why is the Land O'Lakes butter more yellow this year? Or why did you change the cottage cheese container from glass to plastic? Or What's really in Dr. Pepper? And these letters, the correspondence back and forth still exist. And um, when I graduated college, while I was still in college, I started to become interested in nutrition myself. And that was the direction of my first career. So she had a big influence on that. And she was so ahead of her time so ahead of her time. And um, if she were born later, she probably would have been a doctor or scientist. That's right. The opportunities would have been there for her. Very different. Yeah. Okay. Well, the next one, if you could have dinner with any woman, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh my gosh, this was a hard one. The first person that came to my mind was Michelle Obama because it's just so easy. It's so, you could talk in broad strokes. There's so many areas you could talk to her about, from music to politics to parenting to, you know, mental health, all of it. I feel like she's a beautiful kind of knowledgeable spokesperson on anything and everything that would be of interest to me. That's kind of an easy one. I tried to think of someone maybe a little less obvious. And the only person I come up with was Fran Lebowitz because she makes me laugh. Maybe Michelle and Fran. Michelle and Fran. It could be a small dinner party. Yeah. Okay, here's the last shakedown question. What is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? I would like to hone my passion to the degree where I know that I have touched people with it. I've made them think, feel, and laugh. Don't ask me what that medium is. I think you're, I think you're already accomplishing it with your lullabies. I'm not satisfied yet. You're not? You're, <laughs> you're still going forward, upward. Yep. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, well, everybody, those were the shakedown questions from our friend Lisa Roth, and we'll be right back after this short message. Never miss an episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. Sign up for our Spotlight newsletter and get updates on new episodes, virtual and in-person events, and much more. 
signing up is easy. Grab your phone, visit backstagechats.com and click the newsletter link. And don't worry, we respect your privacy and your inbox. Sign up today and see who's in the spotlight. And we're back. Once again, we're chatting with Lisa Roth of the record series Rockabye Baby and CMH Label Group. We just finished the shakedown, which was our way of getting to know Lisa uh, on you know the same scale that we do with all of our other guests. But what I really want to do right now is kind of go back in time and figure out how you would describe a typical day for Lisa as a young girl growing up in the Roth household. Well, as a young girl, it it all on the surface seemed pretty typical. You wake up, go to school, come home, go to ballet class, come home, eat dinner, wake up, go to school, after school, go to guitar lesson or trumpet lesson, uh, come home, eat dinner. My father, it was a doctor, a surgeon, and he decided to become a doctor after he already had a family. So he was pursuing that in my early childhood. He was a scientist who also loved theater and eventually owned an equity waiver theater in Pasadena, California, and he acted and directed and wrote. And my mother, our mother, was an esthete. It was all about how things look. She was an artist, a decorator, very um, ebullient and smart and creative woman. So our household had this balance of science and creative. And then my brother... (laughs) added a little spice to the mix. He was always full of energy, we'll say. And I have a younger sister who's eight years younger. So in my childhood, I had my own baby doll who I loved taking care of. I don't know if that answers your question. If there's something specific you want to know, please feel free to ask. It does. I, In fact, one of the things that I was very intrigued with this, that balance of the science and the arts. And of course, as you mentioned, you went on to become a nutritionist. Is that kind of balance also apparent in what your sister and brother do and how they live their lives? I pursued nutrition because I didn't know what else to do. Due to circumstances in my life, I never really had the luxury to have big picture goals and figure out who I was and what I wanted to do. I I had a father that was a doctor who would have loved a child to become a doctor. I had a grandma that made suggestions. So that's the direction I went. The three of us are all very creative beings. My brother knew what he wanted to do from the very beginning and had an obsession with it, which is what you have to have, especially back in the day, to make a career of it. My sister, also extremely creative human being. You know, we were both, we have a healthy respect for sciences. I love the life sciences. It's what I studied in school. I absolutely am enthralled with the human body and how it works. And I think that, you know, they have a healthy respect for that as well. So I guess all three of us have some balance going on in some way, shape, or form. In growing up in that type of household, 
And in California, 60s, 70s, um, I know that you experienced desegregation and schooling and watched Road versus Wade unfold. Um, and I'm wondering, how did those social and political events affect you as a young woman? I always say that they informed every aspect of who I am, everything I believe in, everything I care about. And, you know, I was a young child during the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King's assassination. I saw it unfold. It's what my family talked about. It's what we saw on our black and white television. It was a constant presence. Um, it wasn't something that was introduced to me later. It was just part of my surroundings, my um, experience. And then I came of age during, like you mentioned, Roe versus Wade, the anti-war movement, so many things going on. And our school system in Pasadena was the largest desegregation program after, I believe, Alabama in the South. And my brother and I were always kind of the minority at our schools. It was our reality. So it wasn't anything special inside the walls of those schools that we grew up in and at the homes of our friends. It was our reality. What was going on outside those walls is very much what you'll find today, which is a sad truth. And that was a city that didn't want desegregation. Um, when busing started, there was huge white flight to, um, to other schools, to private schools. Um, private schools started proliferating. I think Pasadena has more private schools per capita than most cities in the U.S. And people wanted to defund the program, and eventually they won. But during my little window of time in the early to mid-70s, and before that, it was a reality, and it was amazing, and it was the most important part of any education I had before or after that. Is there a particular uh, memory that comes to mind that really gives you that feeling of what you experienced when you were in that desegregated era of um, school and what was being discussed at home? I don't know that there's a single memory. I think what it provided was what's missing for a lot of people, and that is a familiarity. These were the families that took me in when I needed a place to stay. And I was taken to, um, you know, Baptist churches. And at school, we were locking arms and doing our sit-ins and our walkouts. And it was just um, familiarity, solidarity, insight. And I think until you have that, there's so much room for fear to seep in. And, um, and I think that that contributes to a lot of the issues we're still seeing, which is so unfortunate. It was over time that I became aware that my experience was unusual, but it gave me so much information and it, it affected the way I walk through the world. 
it was a defining experience. Obviously, that comes true coming to the present day where uh, your next album for the Rockabye Baby series is Marvin Gaye was your chosen artist. Yeah, it was kind of a no-brainer. You know, it was the first album I ever bought. It had a huge impact on me early on. The first time I heard it was at a friend's house who had much more sophisticated music taste than I did. We were in seventh or eighth grade, and I fell asleep on her living room couch with that side one on repeat all night. And I kept waking up, falling back to sleep. And I didn't grasp at that time the complete message, but I knew it was different with the segueing from song to song and it being a concept album. And the music was different. It didn't have that pop soul, you know, thing that I loved. It had jazz influences and it was just beautiful. And it just got in my head through that night. And to this day, it's like a sense memory. The minute I hear the first three notes of one of those songs, I am rushed back to that time. It's like my hair is blowing in the wind. I go back so fast. (laughs) And then with everything going on today, uh, it was an opportunity for Rockabye Baby to shine a light on everything happening and do it in our own way and to give back. Uh, Normally, like you said earlier, we pick artists. We usually have six to eight artists a year that we lullaby throughout the year. Normally, it's a compilation of their greatest hits and deep tracks. And But this is the first front-to-back album we're doing because of the type of album it is. And it is classic and timeless beyond words. And sadly, the themes that Mr. Gay wrote about are still so relevant today, from police brutality to war to the environment, inequality, suffering. It's heartbreaking how relevant it is, but it's an opportunity for us as a brand to give back We are donating 100% of our proceeds from sales and streaming to charities that address these ongoing issues, and we're starting with Color of Change. So we're, we're very excited and very touched about being able to do it. It's a, it's a personal one. It's very personal. It's very personal. And I know that people are going to say, well, wait a minute, we have such heavy topics here that we're talking about in the music. How does that translate to a lullaby? And I was hoping that maybe you could give our audience kind of an overview of how you take a song or a compilation like this and really recreate it into something that is, you know, uh, parent-child friendly. Yeah, good question. So... We have a lot of tricks up our sleeves. Um, We realized early on that translating a popular song, whether it be heavy metal, hip hop, country, that translating it into a lullaby is a little bit of an art form, believe it or not. We have an organic palette of instruments that we use and 
We have a handful of producers who have been doing this with us for years. Leo Flynn, Andrew Bissell, and Stephen Boone. And what we do is we assign an album to each one, um, and they go about the business of deconstructing every song and putting it back together using our palette of instruments. And then myself and my listening partner, James Curtis, listen to each draft of each song, and we send back our notes to the producer. And it goes back and forth like this. 3, 10, 12, 15 times before we get it just right. And each genre and each song presents its own challenges. And like you said, the themes are serious. But if you listen to Marvin Gaye's music, the actual music in the album, um, it's not depressing. It's uplifting. It's a plea. It's full of love and heart. And it's like going to church. And so there was that element which helped us through the process. The area where we really had to work hard was the presentation of the recording, the album art, the verbiage, the artwork all around, because we're usually very lighthearted and bright and sweet and silly and look for some wit and cleverness. And we didn't want to do that quite as much. So that's where the creativity came in for us. Really happy with it. The artwork is amazing and the sound came out beautiful. And by the way, (laughs) similarly, trying to translate like a Black Sabbath song, heavy metal minor chords using a woodblock and bells and some of our other instruments is more difficult, trust me. <laughs> well, I know that these are done instrumentally, so we're we're not going to give the kids nightmares with like Enter Sandman. <laughs> no, they are instrumental. They're friendly. They are lullabies that we want the parents to relate to. We want to be a bridge between who you were before you became a parent and who you're becoming after you become a parent. It's a bridge. It's something almost more for the parent than the baby, but it is very baby friendly. Absolutely. Okay. So when you started this idea, were you already at CMH? Yeah, I I had started at CMH that week. Um, I started at the company without a, without a job description or a title. I actually met them. I started doing, I was hired to do some nutrition lectures for the company. And one of the partners, now there's just one owner, the owner and his partner at the time, uh, offered me a job without a description or a title. And I thought, well, I never aspired to be in the music business, but sure, let's see what happens. And I was shopping for a baby shower gift when the idea kind of started to form. I didn't see anything music-wise that I would have been excited to give to my friend who was having the baby shower. And I thought, we have to get into the baby business and do something that parents will love had this idea. I came back, told the owner that we need to get into the baby business. 
we gathered a creative group and started talking about ways to do it. I was saying things like baby's first sex pistols or baby's first punk rock or something like that. And my coworker at the time, Valerie Aiello, said lullaby renditions of Metallica, or maybe it was lullaby renditions of Led Zeppelin. And everybody said, well, that's it. And it became the beginning of our series. And Valerie was the initial um, producer for the first year. And then when she left, I took over and we have been hacking away at this for 15 years now. <laughs> you know, I have to say what's one of the things that's so incredible about this is number one, you were hired at the record label as it, coming off of being a nutritionist. Uh, number two, within your first week, you end up pitching an idea that the executives took seriously instead of saying, oh, she's new and she doesn't really know what she's talking about. I mean, they really saw it and went with it. And number three, this kind of basically your nutritionist past kind of, you know, took the sideline as all of a sudden now you're not producing one album. I mean, this is, you're becoming the creative director and pushing a whole series. I think that's pretty incredible. I don't see it as incredible. My whole life has been about showing up and putting one foot in front of the other. No big plans, no goals, just showing up. And sometimes that's about all you can accomplish. However, it's very clear to me that if you show up and put one tiny baby foot step in front of the other, you're creating forward motion. And my professional life is sort of a reflection of that. I had I, I did the nutrition thing for 20 years and it was very fulfilling and I got to do it um, in different ways in different places. And then I went into television production. I produced segments for mostly Discovery Network and National Geographic and I did that for five years. And then I stopped and this came up. So it's sort of me showing up, bumping into things. Um, I have an incredible knack for talking people into thinking I am very capable. And then I usually get the job without the, the requisite skill set. And it's trial by fire. And <laughs> that's my life story. So I don't know what that says, and I don't know what that tells other people, except one foot in front of the other, show up, at the very least, show up, and never stop being an apprentice in life, learning, asking questions, don't get lost thinking you have all the answers. And uh, also, I would say that this is all kind of very indicative of creating your own opportunity. Because when you first started, you put a quote from a coworker on a post-it note. Is that right? Did I hear something about this? Oh my God. It's one of my most prized possessions. It's on the wall at work. When I first started working at the company, I, I came into the company in retrospect and not the most advantageous way. I came in with no job title no job description. And there are all these people there who are going, 
who is this? Why is she here? And, you know, that can cause concern. It can cause skepticism. It can cause fear, whatever. But one of the people there said to me, you have no discernible skills to be working here. And I kind of laughed. I I pulled out my post-it note and I said, could you repeat that? And I wrote it down and it has sat on my wall for almost 16 years now. And it is my life story. I just told you (laughs) that is truly my life story. I mean, obviously you have to have some insight or knowledge about you know, an area you're pursuing and, or if you don't, you really have to balls to the walls, start learning. But, um, that is my life story kind of showing up without the obvious skill set and being able to leverage what I have. I was listening to a woman named Tina Selig on the radio once on a podcast. She's a professor at Stanford And she described entrepreneurship as entrepreneurs do much more than imaginable with much less than seems possible. And then she said that it's not about starting businesses, but about leveraging resources. And I have a black belt in leveraging resources, whether it's my own personal skill set Um, I'm soft skills all the way. I don't think I have one executive skill, but I had to, to, you know, survive, to move forward, leverage a skill set. And then working at a small company now, our record label, it's about leveraging resources to make things happen without a huge budget. And so what Tina Selig said, I I agree with wholeheartedly. I just think it's fabulous that you're creating this mem- kind of memory bridge between parents and children. And what a fabulous idea turned reality. And I just would like to say congratulations on an amazing achievement. And thank you for, you know, giving us these amazing gifts. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you're so welcome. And thank you. This was just a lovely conversation. I love that. Everyone listening, uh, we really appreciate you being here today. As you may remember, uh, Backstage Chats with Women in Music is a production of Horizon Music Foundation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that's based in Austin, Texas. And we look forward to seeing you in our next episode. But those episodes are made possible because of you. So if you would like to donate to the cause, please go to backstagechats.com. Click the donate button and take it from there. We appreciate all of your support. Uh, We also want to let you know that there will be links to Lisa Roth's Rockabye Baby series and some music clips and so on and so forth that will be on our show notes page at backstagechats.com. And we invite you to see that as well. Until the next time, take care. It's a wrap.